Hi, and welcome to Becoming Childwise. I'll be reading from Our Covenant with Kids, Biblical Nurture in Home and Church by Dr. Timothy A. Sizemore. Chapter 3, Innocence or Devils, The Spiritual Nature of Children. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Psalms 51, verse 5. God made man a little lower than the angels, and he's been getting lower and lower ever since. Will Rogers. The scene is all too typical. A heartbroken and discouraged pair of Christian parents crumble into my office chairs and share their disillusionment about their children. The father begins, I've really had it. I have spanked our kids whenever they did wrong or upset us, and they still are rebellious. Doctor, the mother interjects, my husband and I have argued about the kids for years. He insists they be spanked for any little thing they've done wrong. Spare the rod and spoil the child. I disagree. I think we are to be loving and understanding, forgiving their mistakes. Either way, they're ungrateful and flat-out sinful. The wife and I agree on one thing. We failed as parents, and I guess as Christians as well. The mother laments, I always believed if we loved our children, protected their self-esteem, and provided them with a good life, that they would grow to be obedient and respectful. At least that's what I've read in some parenting books. The doleful faces of this exhausted couple prick my heart. Here are two well-intended believers who take raising children seriously and have pursued the ideas they thought right only to give themselves failing marks as their children begin to mature. Oh, sure, it is easy to fault them for being divided, and that certainly hasn't helped matters. But how can two sincere Christians have such differing views of how to raise children, neither of which seems successful? The answer is surprisingly simple. By adopting parenting techniques without understanding exactly why they are supposed to work. We in the West are a pragmatic bunch. Tell us how to do it, and don't slow us down with explanations. Give us how, and don't bother with why. As a result, we end up with lots of strategies, but are not really sure why they should work. For Christian parents, this results in basing our approach to raising children on unexamined assumptions of what we are working with and trying to accomplish. Most often times, these assumptions are tied to the Bible in some way, but fail to incorporate the big picture of all that scripture has to say about children and raising them. The couple above demonstrates two common approaches. The father epitomizes the authoritarian model that says that if you are forceful enough, your kids will respect you. The biblical basis for this was mentioned in our vignette. A narrow view of parenting as spare the rod and spoil the child. He proudly defends the Bible's endorsement of the rod, but fails to see there is more to be learned. For example, this strategy doesn't give us much idea as to why children need the rod or how it is to be used. The mother is more contemporary, believing that kindness begets kindness. Children, being basically sweet-natured, will blossom without really needing punishment. 
This is a form of the self-esteem view which claims that behavior problems only occur when a child doesn't feel good about herself. Children who are confident in themselves will naturally behave well. Parents strive to be sure their children are happy and protect them from anything that might make them think less of themselves. Christians often rationalize this by pointing out that if we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, we've got to be sure we love ourselves well enough first. These approaches at least are based on some sort of logic. Others are more personal and spontaneous, generally being reactions to the way one was raised himself. My parents did it that way, and I turned out all right, or... I promised myself I'd never treat my kids the way I was treated, are examples of this view. Others parent by their feelings, punishing children when angered by their behavior or attitudes. Still others fly by the seat of their pants and have no strategy but respond to provocation in one way this time and another way the next. All of these approaches fall short because they don't build on a thoroughly biblical understanding of what children are like. This leads us to a major theme of this book. Parenting techniques must flow from a biblical understanding of the nature of children. If I am to write a house for electricity, if I am sorry, if I am to wire a house for electricity, I had better not just dive into the task. Rather, I need to learn how electricity works, lest I hurt myself and destroy the very house I'm working on. Wiring outlets and running cables is not hard, but making sure these are compatible with the nature of the electrical current that will run through them requires a thorough understanding of electricity. In the same way, Christian parents need to have a biblical view of children before choosing their approaches to parenting so their plans complement the spiritual nature of their children. The Roots of Popular Thought Weeds are pesky because their roots are strong and hidden. So it is with the ideas many Christians have about the nature of children They are difficult to eliminate because their roots in secular psychology are strong and well hidden even from those who hold them. Let's look at two major views and examine their roots so we can remove them from the garden of our ideas about the nature of children. Easily the most popular is the view that children are naturally good or sinless until they are exposed to the problems of the world and do wrong as a response to the bad things of society. This view became almost automatic to Westerners by the huge success of Baby and Child Care by Dr. Benjamin Spock, not the one with the pointy ears on Star Trek, and Thomas Gordon's Parent Effectiveness Training. Both of these books are deeply embedded in humanism that stresses that people are by nature good. Many Christians have absorbed this view into their thinking without realizing it, assuming that children are good from birth but may mess up later on. The behavioral psychologists led by authorities like B.F. Skinner see children as blank slates when they arrive in the world tending toward neither good nor bad. 
parents and others in the environment determine the child's personality by their reactions to the child's behavior. Little ones learn to be good or bad depending upon what they are taught. Many, if not most Christians, hold this view today in a form which teaches that children are born morally innocent and until they sin, deserve to go to heaven if they die because they have no failures on their records. Children eventually become accountable for their behavior once they understand the difference between right and wrong. Yet they inevitably sin in fulfillment of the biblical statement that all have sinned, Romans 3.23. This view sees children as beginning neutral but as eventually sinning in some way. Neither of these views clearly reflects the teaching of scripture, so parenting approaches based on them will fail to meet the true spiritual needs of children and lead to disappointments such as those of the couple we met earlier. As Christians, we must take care to examine our ideas before putting them into action lest we see weeds sprout from what we've planted. We need to delay the how-to strategies until we have a better understanding of who we are dealing with. Let us expose and uproot the weeds in our thinking and look to the pure word of God to learn about the spiritual nature of children. Created in his image. What makes us so special anyway? Why do Christians value human life over other forms? The answer is found in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Whereas God declared that the rest of his creation was good, man stands above the rest by being expressly created in the image of God. This is not the same as saying that all people are the children of God for that is a title reserved for God's special people. Rather, the image of God defines the uniqueness that sets us apart from all other creatures. It then follows that when we minister to a child, we need to appreciate the meaning of this little one being made in the image of God. Our task of understanding the spiritual nature of children requires us to answer two vital questions about the image of God. First, what exactly does it mean that we are made in God's image? Second, we know that Adam and Eve sinned after they were created in the likeness of God. So, how is the image evident in the lives of people who live after the fall of Adam? Of what does the image consist? Frankly, there is no definitive answer to our first question. Many writers have spoken of the riddle of the content of the image because the biblical evidence is so scanty. This means that a variety of opinions have been offered as to what the image is, and I encourage the ambitious reader to study these further on his or her own. I will present what I believe to be the best explanation. Since Genesis doesn't come right out and tell us what the image is, how are we to know? John Calvin declares that the end of regeneration is that Christ should reform us to God's image. 
Whatever the image was, it was fouled up when Adam sinned. But once we are born again, it is to be restored through sanctification and glorification. If we know what has to be restored to the image after we are saved, we know of what it consisted before Adam sinned. The New Testament gives us two verses that suggest the nature of the image of God in this manner. Colossians 3.10 states, We have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Paul here teaches that the image of the creator includes knowledge, suggesting our capacity for knowing to be one way in which we are made in God's image. This is not a new interpretation, as it can be traced at least as far back at the fifth, as the 5th century when Augustine claimed reason and intelligence to be part of the divine image in man. Given that God is all-knowing, being in his image would include some share of this knowledge. This makes much logical sense as no one debates that man is far superior to animals in intelligence. Language serves as a good example of human intellectual capacity. Our ability to communicate with each other opens the door to the thinking skills that make us human, such as reason, contemplation, and abstraction. God even reveals himself to us in language in the Bible, again showing the importance of our intelligence. Only man among the creatures is capable of knowing God, and only man is aware of himself. These two set us apart from the rest of creation. What does this have to do with kids? A major part of the joy in watching children grow is seeing them grow in intelligence and language skills. Little children pick up language at an astounding speed and researchers have learned that the brain appears to be created ready to be programmed in any particular language to which the child is exposed. How do we teach our little ones about God or about what is right and wrong? We appeal to their ability to understand words and to reason out what is the right thing to do in particular situations. Indeed, adults invest more energy in trying to educate children than almost any other thing. So it seems reasonable that being made in God's image includes being given the gift of intelligence by him. The second aspect of God's image in man which we can deduce from scripture also comes from the writings of Paul, this time from Ephesians chapter 4 verse 24. Paul says the new self is created to be like God in the righteousness and true righteousness and holiness. Righteousness and holiness represent moral perfection. The former meaning one only does what is right and the latter reflecting purity of character and behavior. Adam was righteous before he sinned and as such he enjoyed sweet, unhindered fellowship with God. The first man always did that which was right, given his perfect moral nature. This also dramatically set Adam apart from the beasts that were governed merely by instinct. Since God is holy and righteous, 
to be made in his image would reasonably include a moral component, as is suggested in our text. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 tells us that believers are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, referring to Christ's sinlessness. Being pure like God is also the Christian's goal according to 1 John chapter 3 verse 1 to 3. Our restoration to image of God then appears to mean a return to a state of moral perfection, one that Adam had at the dawn of human history. Adam sacrificed his perfection when he sinned, polluting his descendants as well. We continue to have a moral sense and inclination, but one which is now tarnished by sinful motives and distorted reasoning about what is right. Children offer evidence of morality early on, as researchers have found basic forms of empathy, a moral emotion, and the tearful responses of infants to the sounds of other children in distress. Scientists such as Lawrence Kohlberg have devoted much energy to tracking the process of how children develop in their ability to reason morally, whereas Kohlberg and other scholars admit human morality and study its growth, they offer no insight into what is moral or not. They strangely neglect the moral correctness of the choices people make, focusing purely on the processes used to make them. Nonetheless, there seems to be generally agreement even in the secular realm that man has a moral inclination which we as Christians see as part of the image of God. Let's take a moment to summarize what we have covered in this section. Children are born in the image of God. When Adam was first created, he shared in a great deal of knowledge and in righteousness of God. He reasoned accurately and walked sinlessly. Eve shared in the bliss of being precisely in the image of God while living in paradise. This is the pristine meaning of being made in God's image, reflected when the Westminster Confession defines it as being endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image. What happened to the image in the fall? The first couple's unblemished state was short-lived, and as we've already noticed, the perfect image of God in them was distorted but not destroyed. The Bible lets us know this when it tells us man is still in God's image after the fall. Following the flood, God made a covenant with Noah, Genesis 9-6, which makes clear that shedding the blood of another human is sinful. Why? For in the image of God, has God made man? Despite our fallenness, all persons still share in the image of God in such a way as to make every human life valuable. This is the reason Christians defend human life. Using the same argument, James sees cursing others as evil because men have been made in God's likeness. James 3.9 Scripture again teaches that good treatment of others follows from their being made in God's image. We understand then that children, and all other humans, 
have intrinsic value because they share in the image of God. Christians are to recognize this and consequently value all persons. Though the image remains, it isn't what it used to be. John Calvin states this plainly. Even though we grant that God's image was not totally annihilated and destroyed in him, Adam, yet it was so corrupted that whatever remains in is frightful deformity. Accurate knowledge and holiness no longer characterize man in his sinful state. God's pronouncement that man was very good in Genesis 1.31 changes after sin to the description of Genesis 6.5. Quote, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. End quote. We now bear God's image, but it is only a vague shadow of what it originally was. Let's see how each of the aspects of the image changed after Adam's sin. Man no longer enjoys the pure knowledge and accurate reasoning of his pristine state, yet some aspects of this persist. Theologian Carl Henry tells us that Augustine maintained that the remnants of the intellectual image included the laws of logic, the immediate consciousness of self-existence, the truths of mathematics, and the moral truth that one ought to seek wisdom. Let's look more closely at each of these. The laws of logic are still around and give us our most basic form of reasoning. If an argument disobeys these laws, then it isn't acceptable, though fallen persons frequently fail to discern irrational arguments. In Christian education circles, there is increasing interest in making logic a part of children's curriculum to help them sort truth from error. Interestingly, this in itself represents a break from the excessively practical education that marks our time and a return to the standards of instruction which have guided much of Western history. Secondly, humans alone among the earthly creatures have an awareness of ourselves as individuals. This is seen, for example, in the simple but startling notion that only humans realize that they will die someday. An awareness of our mortality is an interesting part of the image, because had Adam not sinned, we would not be subject to death. Next, most everyone generally agrees with mathematical truths without question. 2 plus 2 equals 4 anywhere you go, though I know a few children who would even argue that this just for the fun of it. Finally, secular as well as Christian authorities hold the value of wisdom. Education is encouraged in almost all circles of modern thinking, even to the point that many humanists believe that more education alone will solve all our problems. While we agree with education as a worthwhile venture, it alone will not compensate for the sin that is in us, and can even be used to divert children from true paths of wisdom since we are fallen. 
We understand then that certain intellectual functions persist since the Garden of Eden, but these are often misused and misguided. Remnants of the moral aspect of the image of God also remain in sinful humans. Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 1 verse 18 to 20 and chapter 2 verse 15 that fallen humans still have the law written on their hearts, specifically in their consciences. There are similar basic moral values throughout various cultures, many of these resembling the second table, the fifth through the tenth of the Ten Commandments fairly well. Thus, while the image of God within us tells us there is law, our fallenness pushes us to rebel against it. This leaves people torn between some impulse to do right and another to do wrong. Remember the old cartoons that would picture an angel and devil appearing on either side of the character's head, one urging good and the other bad behavior? This shows a surprisingly good insight into our conflicting spiritual nature, though we need not invoke angels and devils to account for it. I often point out to parents the power of this sense of what is right by having them observe how fiercely teenagers will fight against something they see as unfair, for this is an emotional response to moral injury, even though their ideas of what is fair often make little sense showing the distortion of reason and morality in humans following Adam's sin. What this means for children. This has been rather technical, so we would do well to consider the implications of the image of God for our ministry to children. Intellectual abilities are cultivated naturally by parents around the world. We expectantly await the first words of our infants and try to hasten the day they can read and write. Motivated children eagerly learn all kinds of things, so we now know that our natural tendency toward learning is attributable to our being made in the image of God. But there is more. The fallen nature of the image warns us that care should be taken in teaching children. Nothing here suggests that children are eager only to learn what is right. It seems they are more often enthusiastic about learning things that aren't good for them. Observe how children are motivated in master violent video games while they are often apathetic about memory verses. A task of Christian ministry to children whether by parents, teachers, or clergy, is to teach them a Christian world and life view, not just the facts. This also implies we must guard our little ones from learning things that fuel their sinful natures. Proverbs repeatedly points to the value of wisdom and the role of parents in passing it on. As modern parents, we must understand we can't pass on what we don't have. It is essential that Christians be active in continuing education for themselves, studying the Bible, Christian books, and other fields so we develop a well-informed Christian worldview. Then we must be aggressive in teaching our children a Christian framework that integrates what they know. We'll dig deeper into this in chapter 6. 
most parents have not thought much about the moral nature of children or its being part of the image of God. But this has not hindered us from diligent efforts to teach children right and wrong through instruction and correction. Understanding the spiritual roots of our moral tendency gives us a greater appreciation for the abilities of children to learn to tell right from wrong. This reminds adults working with children of their responsibility to teach them the truth about what is right, educating them in the biblical standards of morality, and preparing them to challenge the misguided ideas of right prevalent in the world around us. The moral image is even evident in some way to the secular culture as it believes something is out of order with criminals who lack any conscience or moral feeling. But humanists miss the point when they assume that because we all have some sense of what is right, we will generally follow it. They fail to appreciate how distorted our sense of morality is because of sin. Even as Christians, our experience teaches us that we, like Paul in Romans 7, 21-23, have powerful impulses to do wrong even when we know what is right and want to do it. This leads to the need for correction and discipline, a topic we'll explore in chapter 7. To summarize, we have learned that an understanding of the image of God gives us much insight into children, showing us that they have an inclination to learn and to have a conscience about right and wrong. Both of these are distorted due to the sinful nature we share since Adam's transgressions. Our learning is plagued by errors in logic and tendencies to see things as we wish instead of as they are. We are still moral beings, but left to ourselves, we define what is right by our own standards and not the objective standards of the Bible. The remnants of God's image give us positive material with which to work as we minister to children, but remind us how careful we must be to guide these little ones into the truth. in sin. Children are quite a paradox. At times they're incredibly cute. Witness the oohs and ahs of well-wishers peering into the newborn's nursery or the delightful photos of gleefully playing children that grace television ads and magazine articles. On the other hand, few things in life are as exasperating as children. Most parents recall the sleepless nights that follow the oohs and ahs and how the beautiful baby seemed quite a nuisance as she refused comfort from her red-eyed, exhausted mom and dad. That's not to mention the terrible heartache many parents endure as they see their teenagers turn against the values they have labored to pass on to them. Cute or not, children are inclined to self-centeredness and sin. I've never discovered a parenting book that explain to fathers and mothers how to help their perfectly good children develop some sense of mischief. 
We are not left to decide for ourselves whether children are inclined towards good or evil by nature. The word of God has clearly spoken, but it is a message we are woefully reluctant to hear. Let the reader beware. Any notions you carry about innate goodness of children, no matter how precious they are, do not find support in the Bible. The teaching of scripture challenges our culture's optimistic view that children are born morally good. We must lay aside any such false preconceptions we have developed on our own lest we build our families on sand. Rather, we must build our understanding of the nature of the children on the rock of God's word. Our beliefs about the spiritual nature of children have staggering implications for our ministry to them, so let us carefully search for biblical answers. Biblical Roots We begin by surveying some of the key texts about our standing before God at birth. One of the clearest verses is Psalm 51 verse 5, where David confesses, Surely I have been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Little doubt is left that David, inspired by God, views himself to have been sinful from conception on. We can see the logic behind this in the words of Job, who can, be, who can bring what is pure from the impure? No one. If adults are sinful, then it makes no sense that they could produce sinless offspring, for any tree brings forth fruit only after its own kind. The exception to this, of course, is the virgin birth of Christ, who was born of Mary, but who had no earthly father. Other references support David's position, that we are sinful from conception. Eliphaz, Job's friend, comments, what is man that he could be pure, or one born of woman that he could be righteous? Psalm 58 is also attributed to David, and in verse 3 he observes, Even from birth the wicked go astray, from the womb they are wayward and speak lies. Lest one try to say this applies only to the wicked, remember these words are from the same man who described himself in Psalm 51 as sinful since conception. Despite his failures, David assuredly was a man of God. In Ephesians 2.3, Paul teaches that we are by nature objects of wrath. God would be unjust if he targeted his wrath at creatures that are by nature innocent. So we must conclude that we are sinful from the start. How can this be? Paul answers this urgent question in the primary text on the topic, Romans 5, 12 to 19. This is crucial enough to merit quoting in full. Romans 5, 12 to 19. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, 
even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as a result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man the many will be made righteous. Surely there is more to discuss to this passage than our present task allows, so allow me to draw out a few points that will help us understand the spiritual nature of children. Sin causes death, Romans 5.12. Adam would still be around if he had not sinned. Since he did, he must pay the price, and that is death. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, Ezekiel 18, verse 4 and 20, Romans 6, 23. No sin, no death. If there is death, there must be sin. All people die, so all are sinful. Romans 5, 12. After Adam sinned, he brought forth offspring made in his image, not God's. Genesis 5 verse 3. As a result, all people are sinful and die, some infants and children included. We know that horrible diseases like AIDS can be passed to the infant from the mother even though the infant has done nothing personally to deserve it. Sin also is passed from parent to child. Sin is a condition, not just specific acts. If I can borrow again from our AIDS illustration, one can be infected with HIV without manifesting the symptoms for some time. The symptoms merely reveal the disease that is already present. So it is with sin. We are born in it. And the individual acts of wrongdoing serve to remind us of the disease within us. This comparison falls when we remember we are spiritually dead in our sins. Romans 5.14 teaches us that those who lived without a law to tell them specifically what was right and wrong still died. Why? Because sin is more than breaking rules willfully. It is a condition of the heart. Sin is imputed to all people. This statement summarizes much of our text. To impute is to lay something to someone's account. The sin of Adam is laid to our account as his offspring, And this is why we are sinful before we commit specific acts of sin, and why David could claim to be conceived in sin. Does this seem unfair? Thank God it is not, for the same principle lies behind our salvation. Our sins are forgiven by imputation. God held Jesus accountable for our actions and punished punished him in our stead. Then as 
we see clearly in Romans 5, God takes the righteousness of Christ and imputes it to us. If we cannot be held accountable for what someone else does, then the plan of salvation falls apart. Therefore, infants are conceived in sin. The basic point in all of this is that infants are sinful from the start. Because the sin of Adam is imputed to them, placed to their account, since they are born of sinful parents. The formal name for this is original sin. This doesn't just mean the sin of Adam, but it refers to the sinful nature in all of us because we are related to Adam. This guilt may come from Adam, but in God's eyes it is justly ours. Proof of this is seen in the death of infants and children. If children were guiltless, God would be unfair to let them die. Since infants are subject to death, we admit they are indeed conceived in sin, just as David said. What does this mean for us? It means young children may be naive, but they are certainly not innocent. Original sin implies that all people are totally depraved, meaning that every part of their being is infected by sin. Even though children may have impulses to do good, these are still compromised by motives other than to please God, for example, to avoid a punishment. This is developed in passages such as John 5.42, Romans 7.18, Romans 8.7-8, Ephesians 4.18, and Titus 1.15. Original sin also explains why every child who lives long enough will show their sinful nature by doing wrong. The other aspect of original sin is total inability. This means we are ultimately unable to please God in our own power. Jesus taught this when he proclaimed that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus also would have us understand that apart from me you can do nothing. Paul further demonstrates this rule in Romans chapter 8, 7 to 8 by saying, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Spiritually dead persons can do nothing to better their estate. As for our children, God must intervene in their lives to change their natures if they are to be free from sin. Lessons from the Doctrine of Original Sin Understanding these truths is hard work, but laying a foundation is often the dirtiest part of building a house. So it is in preparing to minister biblically to children. Now let's consider the practical aspects of what we have learned. First, children are born in sin. The Bible does not leave any room for the idea that children are naturally inclined toward good. Though remnants of the image leave children with a conscience, it can readily be led away from the truth of God's law. Moreover, being naturally sinful, we are unable to fulfill the law anyway. This is why the cross is essential. Because they are born in sin, some children die in infancy. Being sinful in their nature, 
God is just to execute the penalty of death upon them. Do these little ones have a chance for heaven? Stay tuned for our next chapter. Children need to be taught the need for God's saving grace. Discipline has a major place in the life of a child, but spankings and other punishments will not get them to heaven. Those ministering to children as parents or in other roles must teach children of their sinfulness. Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan pastor and theologian, referred to children as little vipers to make clear the potency of original sin. We may not use language quite that graphic, but we must not teach self-esteem in such a way that children fail to see their sinfulness before God and their need for salvation. Since salvation is of God's grace, diligent prayers are needed for the children under our charge. Children will always struggle with concupiscence. This may be a new term for many, and it can be defined as the wrongful inclination of the sinner which characterizes his nature and leads to sinful acts. This term was a favorite of Augustine and described the ongoing yearning to do wrong that persists even after we are saved. It might be called lust or inordinate desires in our day, but it suggests that our sinful nature still tempts us. For parents, this means that our children, even if they are clearly Christians, will battle with tendencies toward wrong, just like their parents, and will need ongoing discipline and direction. Our discipline may serve like a fence to contain an untamed animal, but it does not take away the animal's impulses to break free. It is the task of God to tame the wildness of our little ones while we attempt to restrain their impulses and garner their sinful nature. We help them realize the struggle they face. Discipline alone will not exterminate concupiscence, so we must prepare our little ones for the lifelong battle against sin, one which we as adults share. But be careful. Building on the notion of original sin, there are some Christians who teach that selfish impulses of children should be dealt with from the start. They advocate not responding to the hungry cries of newborns, except at certain times to teach them who is boss from the start. Sadly, this thinking fails to understand that such cries from very young babies are vital because unless someone responds, they will die in their helplessness. The first lesson babies need to learn is that there is someone there for them when they are in distress, forming in them a sense of trust and attachment. As the baby grows, crying may become manipulative and can be dealt with from the context of the parent-child relationship without the risk of trauma. Selfishness is wrong, but it is not to be confused with genuine need and a desire for security. We now have some ideas about what Bible teaches about the nature of children. Even sin did not destroy the image of God in its entirety, leaving our little ones with desires and abilities to learn and moral leanings, which can be shaped for good or ill. Children are conceived and born in sin, subject to its penalty of death like all of us. We know that we must prayfully seek God's saving grace for their 
lives and his guidance for their lives and his guidance and preparing them for the battle against sin teaching them about their sinful nature and concupiscence discipline is required as we try to shape and restrain the behavior of our little ones but ultimately god must change their hearts the spiritual task of prayer and teaching are more decisive for spiritual victory than simply knowing how to punish children better viewed in the light of their spiritual nature ministry to children is more of a challenge yet it is a most honorable and vital work when undertaking with an absolute dependence on God's grace.